You can remain standing for the reading of God's word. This is from Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. You can find them in your pew Bible on page 867. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. You can be seated. Let's pray and ask for God's blessings. Father, we thank you that your word never goes out and returns to you empty, that it is hammer and fire and uh, all that you would wish it to be. And we pray that it would be so this morning uh, in us and in our hearts. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's good to be with you this morning. I bring you greetings from the saints at Christ Church Conway. My wife, Christina, my son, Weldon, and our uh, young seven-month-old daughter, Rosie. Uh, back in 2009, I was just out of college, and I was living in a little town in East Tennessee called Pigeon Forge. And if you've never heard of Pigeon Forge, uh, it's sort of the Branson of the East. Of course, people there would call Branson the Pigeon Forge of the West. But you get the idea. It is the home of Dollywood theme park, a uh, Ripley's Believe It or Not museum, a life-size replica of the Titanic, and outlet malls and go-kart tracks and putt-putt courses about as far as the eye can see. And Pigeon Forge, um, despite being a tourist trap, is actually a pretty small town. And so it was a big deal in 2009 when we found out that George W. Bush was coming to speak at the convention center in town. Now, we are pretty far removed from W's presidency now. We're thinking about other things that have to do with the presidency. Uh, but this was right after he left office. And so it felt like the president was coming to town. But not only that, he was actually flying into this little private airstrip uh, that sat right behind the church I was working at. Uh, in other words, the president was going to be driving right through my parking lot and right past my office. Now somehow, uh, we, meaning my coworkers uh, at the church and I, found out that this was happening, and so we did what any red-blooded American does when the president comes to town. We went out to see him. And we were all standing in the parking lot, shivering, uh, sort of waiting, and we see the plane come in. Uh, on this big hill behind us and it lands and there's a hangar, it's sort of hidden from, from view and maybe 15 minutes goes by and all of a sudden, uh, down from the hangar, down this hill, 
come tearing these five or so blacked out suburbans driven by men in, in black suits with sunglasses and the, the earpieces and the little uh, curly cords and they blow past us. It was just like out of a movie and I couldn't see him. Uh, he's behind some bulletproof glass tinted in one of those vehicles, but it didn't really matter. Because in my mind, I was just thinking, there is the president. And this all happened very quickly. And by the time they pulled out of the parking lot, I looked down and I realized that my, I was waving. And I wasn't even consciously waving. Uh, it's like my arm was detached from my brain, but I was waving. And it turns out that when you are that close to the leader of the free world, and maybe some of you have had an experience like this, you just have to acknowledge him. You just have to do something. And so I wasn't looking at my phone. I wasn't looking off in the distance. My whole self was focused on him. Peter feels the same way in this passage. And the feeling is multiplied, of course. The president is just a man. Uh, but Peter is face to face with God himself. And Jesus has brought him, uh, along with James and John, up to the mountain, and the three of them fall asleep while Jesus prays. But something happens while he prays. It says, his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. Now, the New Testament doesn't really read like a modern novel, right? It doesn't have a lot of descriptive language. And so if it says dazzling white, what it really means is a white-hot diamond, surface of the sun type glare that is coming out of Jesus. Not on him, as if God had put sort of a heavenly spotlight on him, but more like his inner beauty and goodness and holiness. In other words, his glory is bursting out of him. And not only that, but Moses and Elijah... Uh, two of the most important Old Testament characters representing the law and the prophets are with him in glory. And they're talking about his death on the cross. In other words, Peter falls asleep and when he wakes up, he's witnessing this sort of heavenly board meeting, uh, a spiritual Mount Rushmore that has come to life. And as Peter tries to sort of shake the sleep off of him, he's hearing them talk about Jesus's departure the word here is actually exodus, so that should ring some, some bells for us, uh, that he was about to accomplish. Now, that's a funny way to say it. We don't normally talk about dying as an accomplishment. But, of course, for Jesus, it was. Because as they talk about the cross, they are actually plotting the destruction of Satan, the once and for all conquering of evil, the crushing of the serpent's head that was prophesied in Genesis Three, where as John Owen said, the death of death and the death of Christ. It is a conspiracy, in other words, against the powers of darkness, a conspiracy really of the best kind to rid the world of sin and evil and death. What would you do in that situation? Would you wave? Uh, this is an unprecedented moment in the history of the world. It is an otherworldly sort of prologue to the new heavens and the new earth, like God just sort of cracking open the door for just a second. And James and John are apparently speechless. They don't say anything. Peter says, because Peter always has something to say, right? Verse 33, 
He says, this is great, let's put up some tents. Now that sounds strange, but remember there are some important tents in the Bible. Uh, this may have been a reference to the Old Testament tabernacle or the Feast of Booths, or as uh, Moses' own tent of meeting, perhaps. In Mark's account of this, it just says he didn't know what to say because he was terrified. They were all terrified. Uh, and we will be too, right? So we can cut Peter some slack for wanting to put up sort of a pop-up canopy. Uh, but Peter really didn't need to say anything because something far more important is happening here. God himself is about to say something. And so God sort of ignores the tent idea, thanks but no thanks, Peter, and this cloud comes over. Remember, there are important clouds in the Old Testament as well, specifically uh, God's Shekinah glory cloud that sort of leads the Israelites uh, in the Exodus. And a voice comes out of the cloud the father's own voice saying this is my son my chosen one listen to him and then it is it's all gone it's all back to normal so what does all this mean well we can't recreate the power of this experience this is a once in the history of the world event this is the epitome of you had to be there to understand it but i think there are a couple things that we can take away from this First, uh, and I don't just want to sort of skip over this, first, I think uh, we should believe that this happens. There are many things in the Bible that are hard to understand, right? There are miracles, suspensions of reality, suspensions of the natural order, things that we have never seen and will never see in our lifetimes. And that's what's happening here. And so we might be tempted to ask ourselves, is this really believable? And that's not a bad question, but I think maybe a better question is this, is to ask, is this believable in the context of the Bible, in the world that it presents us? In other words, if you sort of strip away redemptive history, if you look at this episode or the virgin birth or the resurrection or the ascension in a vacuum, then it is very difficult to reconcile with reality. In other words, when we sort of look down on the Bible from our own pedestal of perception and what we have seen, what we've experienced, what makes sense to us, if we do that, we'll be very skeptical about the claims of Scripture. On the other hand, if you look at them in the flow of the big story of the Bible, then I think this makes complete sense. The visual stunningness of Christ's appearance, the conversation with Moses and Elijah, the themes of tents and clouds, the voice of the Father coming down to validate his Son, all these things are things that we can expect. They are a continuation, an unfurling of a conversation that started in the Old Testament, uh, really going all the way back to the day that sin entered the world and death through sin. We really don't need any of this stuff if sin has not wrecked our world and ourselves and our relationships and put us at odds with our Creator. We don't need a sort of supernatural inbreaking of the triune God. I mean, how many books have you read? How many movies have you seen in which all of the action in the story is a byproduct of some sort of great rescue operation that is happening? such as redemptive history, right? 
The story of Christ Jesus coming to earth to save his people is the ultimate story precisely because sin is the ultimate problem. In the books and the movies that are based on these sort of rescue operations on good triumphing over evil in the end, they exist because that is our real situation. It is the air we breathe, I think, and it is known intuitively even to people who are not Christians. And so we need to be rescued because of sin. And all of our other problems flow out of and really pale in comparison to our broken relationship with God, to the fact that we are creatures who are separated and at odds with our Creator. But God, right? But God, taking the initiative Himself, put a plan in motion to set all things right, calling for the offspring of the woman that would bruise the head of the serpent. So the question is not, does this fit with your own experience? The question is, does this fit with who God says he is and what he says he's doing? And I think the answer is yes. I think that this particular scene of the story fits hand in glove with the overarching story. Now the second thing is this. Uh, This is one of two places in the Gospels where the voice of the Father comes down and speaks over Jesus in this way. The other is at his baptism. And so we need to pay careful attention to what he says here. So three things. First, this is my son. Jesus is God. He's the second member of the Trinity. He's the Messiah, the Son of the Most High. Second, he calls him my chosen one. This is Isaiah 42 language when God says, Behold my servant, my chosen one, who will bring justice to the nations. In other words, God is saying, This is the one I chose to carry out this great salvation. This is the seed of the woman long awaited. Third, he says, Listen to him. Listen to him. This is the one I want to explore for a minute. There are a lot of people in this room, so there may be lots of different thoughts when you hear someone say, Listen. Um, Maybe you grew up, for instance, like I did, with a relative or a parent who is a little bit overcautious. Uh, I know, for instance, when my mother says, now listen, she is about to tell me, uh, that's like a signal, that she's about to tell me something that she thinks is just imminently important to my safety. She either read on the news or saw in the paper. uh, Now listen, they found E. coli at Chipotle. I get those kind of phone calls, right? Uh, In fact, I I distinctly remember once in high school going to a movie and my mom said, now listen, nothing good happens in a movie theater parking lot after dark. And I thought, I don't even know what that means, I'm just going to the movie. And when I got out of the movie, which was Finding Nemo, uh, someone had broken into my car and stolen my CD player and I thought, she's right, my goodness. A prophet, as uh, mothers often are. But most of the time, those warnings don't really have much to do, to me, uh, to do with me. Um, and I also think that there is a sense in which media, and I mean that broadly, so think of news and advertising and social media, uh, all those things are saying, listen, listen to this really important thing. This is the most important thing for you. So that we may uh, be a little bit overloaded. We may have listen fatigue if you will, so that when someone says, listen, then we may be even less likely to, because so many people are saying it. 
But imagine for uh, for a minute that you and I are in a scary movie together and we are in some sort of high tension scene in a haunted house and we're walking through a pitch dark hallway and I turn around and I stop you and say, listen, and it would be dead silent because your life is on the line in that situation, right? Your ears will be straining to catch any hint of sound. And really, spiritually speaking, that is more like the situation that is happening here, right? Because we live in a world uh, that is not exactly friendly to us. It is a broken and a fallen place. So that it's really more like a haunted house than we realize. And so when God says, listen, your life really is on the line. Because sin has put us in a position to be in desperate need of rescuing. So we listen. But you might notice that God says, listen, but Jesus isn't actually saying anything in this passage. Uh, But he did say something right before this. In fact, he said something very profound, so profound, in fact, that this whole passage starts with, it says, eight days after these sayings. What was it? Here's what he said. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Now you have probably heard that before, but think about this for a minute. Jesus is telling his disciples, he's saying, A, to deny themselves, forget themselves, forget their own desires and affections and and their vision of the good life and what they want deep inside. And instead, to pick up their cross, to pick up an instrument of death and torture. And that is very counterintuitive. But somehow, he tells us, by following Jesus in his suffering, by losing your life, you save it. And he says, if you don't want that, if you don't want to do that, then okay, you can actually be uh, very successful, a certain kind of successful. And in fact, he says, you can gain the whole world, money and fame and sex and power, and you can treasure those things in your heart if you want, but in the end, you will forfeit yourself. You'll lose your life, why? Because none of those things will take care of your sin problem. In fact, they will make it worse. Jesus knows how counterintuitive it is to give up what you want, to choose to suffer. And so here in this moment, he shows us the end game. He shows us the prize. Because when Jesus gives this sort of sneak peek of eternity, when glory is shining out of his face and his body white hot, he's saying, this is what is on the other side if you follow me, if you suffer with me. And the Father's voice comes down as this this stamp of approval saying, yes, what he's saying is true. This is the reward. Listen to him. It's like when I saw uh, George W. Bush, and my hand was waving, right? You, you have to acknowledge this. You have to respond some way to this. But you don't want to just wave. Like, gotcha. Okay, good to see you. I'll think about it. Because when God says, listen, 
He's not just saying, well, sort of process my words and weigh them and decide maybe what you want to do. It's like my wife and I tell our three-year-old, we have a saying. We say, listen and obey. It does no good to just sort of allow the words in without reacting to them. So what does it look like to listen and obey? Well, broadly, it looks like dying to your sin. We call that repentance. And taking up your cross and following Jesus. We call that faith. And if you're here today and you've never believed in Jesus Christ, then you need to do this for the first time. But for many of you who are Christians and have been for a long time, you need to do this for the 1,000th time or the 2,000th time. Look to the cross, Spurgeon said, and hate your sin, for sin nailed your well-beloved to the tree. Repentance and faith, two sides of the same coin. And these two things taken together are frankly very painful for us. If following Jesus is not painful for you in some way, then you may need to reevaluate. Right? Because scripture is clear that this is a heart transplant. It is a very serious procedure. Because our own hearts are broken, they're corrupted by sin, and that's why we want the money and the fame, the sex and the power, and those are just a few of the big ones, right? Uh, more than Jesus himself. It's why we put those things on the throne of our lives and run after them and worship them. But if you give those things up in repentance... If by God's grace uh, you do a, a sort of surgery on yourself, you rip those things out, and Jesus is telling you it is a painful process, and you put him on the throne of your life, then you won't just live. You will live life to the full, and you will spend eternity basking in the glory of God that we get a little peek at in this passage. And it's incomprehensible. It's beyond anything that we can ever imagine. C.S. Lewis said that we are like uh, children playing with mud pies in the slum because we can't imagine a holiday at the beach. Uh, when I lived in East Tennessee, not only did I see George W. Bush, but I also went once, I uh, lived about 10 minutes from Smoky Mountain National Park, and I went once to uh, a very beautiful natural wonder that uh, was unfortunately a little crassly called the toilet bowl. And uh, the deal with, with this was that, and the reason it had the name was that it was a giant hole in a big rock uh, in the middle of a stream and the water would swirl. And if you got in there and you sort of ducked down, then you would be sort of pushed and sucked through this underwater tunnel and you would pop out the other side. It was every bit as terrifying as it sounds uh, because I did it, uh, peer pressure. Um, you take a big breath, you duck down and everything goes black and you're being sort of taken by the water. Uh, you're not swimming, the water is carrying you through this underwater tunnel. And I remember bouncing around in there, you don't know which way is up, and then just sort of popping out the other end, seeing a, a literal light at the end of the tunnel and then popping out into it and trying to get, trying to get all that air in at once. And that's really what re, uh, repentance feels like. Uh, it's diving down, right? It's a conscious decision, diving down instead of running away into your sinful heart and feeling the weight and the seriousness 
of that sin before God, and it is very dark, and it feels like dying. It feels like there is no way out, like you could never change, like you are stuck. But in Christ, because of what Jesus did on the cross, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. You will pop out the other side into a new life. And it will actually be new here on earth, but it might not feel as new. What it will really feel new is on the other side, right, where the glory is. Uh, and, and we'll be there one day. We'll be there if we listen and obey in repentance and faith. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you again for your word. We love that you have given it to us, uh, that you have given us stories and pictures uh, of incredible things that you have done, of miracles and suspensions of reality. We pray that you would give us uh, eyes to see those things and a a heart to to believe them uh, and to have faith in you that we might repent and believe, uh, that we might trust you and know you, and that we might be with you in glory one day. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.